Please be seated. My name is Dave Farley. I'm one of the pastors here at GCF. Welcome this morning. Let me make two quick announcements. Uh, first is, uh, this Wednesday, right here at 7 p.m., we're going to have our first worship and prayer night. So everyone's invited. We're going to sing a bunch of songs, learn some new songs, and pray together. So that's this Wednesday at what time? 7 o'clock. Everyone's invited. Uh, one of the best ways to grow in godliness is by reading good books. I want to recommend uh, four books from the bookstore. The first one, uh, More Than Conquerors by William Hendrickson. This book has been through like 50 or 60 printings. This book is a little uh, commentary in the book of Revelation. If you find Revelation hard to understand, raise your hand. That's most of us, including your pastor. Uh, this book is a fantastic explanation of Revelation at the lay level, very well written, and it will really help you um, understand that in the end, Christ wins, which is the point of Revelation. Great little book. Uh, next book. This is a brand new book that just came out by Kevin DeYoung, the biggest story Bible, the biggest story Bible story book. Um, Kevin DeYoung is a fantastic author. This is a, a big, thick Bible for kids, full of illustrations. It's a gospel-centered Bible to help your kids understand the personal work of Jesus Christ. Brand new book. Next, uh, one of my favorite books. If you struggle with prayer, raise your hand, okay? If you're not raising your hand, you're probably lying. Uh, prayer is hard. Um, and when I'm stumped in prayer, this particular book is so helpful. It's a collection of a couple hundred Puritan prayers. Uh, each prayer is maybe a page or two long. Um, and I'll just read through it, and it'll help kind of stoke my own prayer life. So if you're looking for a resource to help you pray more effectively, this is a fantastic little book that I've read through numerous times. One more book I want to recommend. Uh, this is also a brand new book called Be Thou My Vision. This book is um, it's an interesting book. It's a... It basically will help you think through your devotional life. So each day there's daily scripture readings, there's a call to worship, a confession of sin, an assurance of pardon, references to hymns, and the Reformed confessions. So if you're looking for a way to stimulate your devotional life, if you want to do something new, this would be um, a great resource for you. It's a beautiful hardbound book, and uh, it'll really help you um, take advantage of the means of grace that God has given us. With that said, um, one more thing. All, all these books we sell at a loss. We don't make any money. We lose money on these books. We just want you guys to have great books to help you grow in godliness. So after church, race to the bookstore and uh, grab some of those books. All right, let me, um, let me pray. Uh, here at GCF, we believe in what's called consecutive exposition. We preach through books of the Bible verse by verse, uh, which means that whatever's next, we preach. And this particular text is next. It's hard, so I'm going to pray uh, for God's help So we seek to understand this text this morning. Uh, Father, thank you so much for uh, giving us so many reasons to sing this morning. Father, thank you for Jesus who suffered and died in our place and who then rose to your right hand and poured out the Spirit. Father, we pray right now that you would send your Spirit to help us understand and apply the beautiful truths of this portion of your inspired and errant word. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. By every objective criteria, Jesus Christ is the most influential person to ever live. Consider these facts. Jesus currently has more followers than anyone else in human history. Currently, 2.3 billion followers. 
Jesus continues to be the centerpiece of the world's yearly calendar. It's the year 2022, which means that Christ was born 2022 years ago. As a trained historian, I refuse to adopt the BCE-CE language. Jesus continues to be the most influential person when it comes to nations. Over 98 nations in world history have claimed to be Christian nations. No other person has that much influence on the nations. Jesus has more cities named after him and his followers than any other person in world history. Over 20,000 in Europe alone. He has more buildings named after him. There have been more books, songs, and poems written about Jesus than anyone else in world history. Jesus' followers are responsible for scientific revolution, the creation of universities, the creation of hospitals, the abolition of slavery, and the liberation of women. Renowned Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan wrote this, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. This all raises the question, why in the world is Jesus Christ so incredibly influential? Well, there are many ways to answer that question. But one of the reasons is surely this. Jesus Christ was one of the world's greatest teachers. And this section in John's Gospel, John 7, 14 to 25, is one of the longest blocks of his teaching anywhere in John's Gospel. And from this teaching, we learn a lot about what Jesus values and what he thinks about certain topics. And this teaching has transformed the world. So what do we learn about Jesus Christ from this particular block of teaching this morning? Three things. We learn about Christ's authority, Christ's hermeneutic, more on that word in a moment, and Christ's verdict. First, Christ's authority. Where in the world did Christ's authority come from? And the answer is God the Father. Look with me at John 7, 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. So it's the middle of the Feast of Booths, which we talked about last week. At this point, Jerusalem would have been teeming with thousands of people from all over the Roman Empire there um, at the temple, feasting with the Israelites. Jesus goes up into the temple, and he starts teaching to the masses, and the masses are very impressed with his teaching. Verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? During this time period, it was essential for rabbis to learn from influential rabbis, to have any kind of street cred or clout. One passage from the Talmud says this, that a person who studies Torah without formal rabbinic training is no better than a common person who knows nothing. The crowds wondered, how in the world is this guy so smart and so authoritative when he does not have an MDiv, THM, PhD, or DMIN from Harvard, Cambridge, or Oxford? Why is he so incredibly gifted and intelligent and authoritative? Well, Jesus tells them. Verse 16. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Rabbis, like most scholars today, anchored everything they said in what had been said before, quoting previous scholars. But Jesus says, that's not what I'm doing. I'm not quoting previous rabbis. 
I'm quoting from God, that is God the Father. My teaching comes directly from God. Now, I thought Jesus knew everything, Dave. How was God the Father his teacher? Well, in his divine nature, Jesus Christ was omniscient. That is, he knew everything. But in his human nature, he had to learn things, and he learned from his Father. He was two natures in one person. Here's the point. Christ's teaching was incredibly powerful and authoritative and effective because his teaching came directly from God the Father. That's what gave him so much power and influence. Now, today, we no longer have Christ physically present with us. But we have access to the very same authority. The Bible comes directly from the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. All of Scripture, every word of this book comes directly from God, which means it has the authority of God, which means that you and I can speak with God's authority when we speak from this book. The year was 1521. The location was the Imperial Diet of Worms. Worms was a city in Germany. A diet was a council. Martin Luther was there on trial for his life. He was considered a heretic by the authorities, and he stood before the most powerful men in all of Europe. And back then, heretics were not treated kindly. Most heretics were burned at the stake or worse. So Luther shows up to defend himself, and he's asked one question, Martin Luther, will you recant of your teaching? He says, wait a minute, wait a minute, I was here to debate, and then he was suddenly silenced. Luther, you have one option, yes or no, will you recant of your teaching? And Luther was immortal, so he asked for a night to think and pray about it, because he knew what happened to heretics, and he did not want to be burn at the stake the following day. So he goes back into his cloister and he prays fervently all night for courage and grace and strength. And the next day he showed up again and he was asked again, Luther, will you recant of all your writings and your teachings? And then he uttered his famous reply. He said this, unless I can be instructed and convinced with evidence from the Holy Scriptures or with open, clear, and distinct grounds of reasoning, then I cannot and I will not recant, because it is neither safe nor wise to act against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Now, why was Luther willing to risk his life? Why was he willing to stand up for what he believed to be the Bible's teaching? Because he knew the Bible's no ordinary book. The Bible comes to us from God. When Luther spoke and taught the Bible, he had the same authority of God because he was speaking and teaching God's very word, which made Luther incredibly bold and courageous. Now, you and I have access to that same authority. Christ's authority was God the Father. Luther's authority 
was God the Father. And as Christians, our authority comes directly from God the Father. Our authority is the word of sacred scripture. The words of the Bible are not man's words. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. Theologians call this the scriptural principle. Whatever the Bible says, it says it with the very authority of God himself. When the Bible says that marriage is between one man and one woman, God is saying that. When the Bible says there's only one way to God the Father through Jesus Christ, it's God who's saying that. When the Bible says that hell is real and eternal, it's God who is saying that. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. And it's really important for all of us to be very clear on this. Because you're only going to be bold and courageous in the future if you're convinced the Bible is the Word of God. Are you convinced the Bible is the Word of God? Do you believe the Bible is God's very word to us? If that's true, we must read it again and again and again and apply it very carefully to our lives. Objection, Dave. The Bible is full of contradictions and errors. Show me. Where are they? Let's talk about it. The Bible has all the marks of being divine. Written by over 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years, three different languages, several different cultures, yet no contradictions. The Bible contains hundreds of fulfilled prophecies. The Bible's truthfulness has been verified again and again and again by archaeology. And the Bible has transformed the lives of literally billions of people. Well, Dave, the Bible's been changed so many times we can't trust it. Not so fast. We have a massive amount of manuscript evidence that the Bible has not changed in 2,000 years. We have over 6,000 Greek manuscripts and 25,000 combined manuscripts arguing that what we have in the Bible today is what was written down 2,000 years ago. There is incredible evidence for the Bible's truthfulness and reliability. The Bible has the very authority of God himself. I understand that, Dave, but how do I know what the Bible means? That brings us to the next point. First is Christ's authority, and second is Christ's hermeneutic. Now, that word hermeneutic comes from the Greek god Hermes. Hermes was the messenger god who brought God's message to the people. Hermeneutics is the art or the, or the uh, discipline of Bible interpretation, Understanding God's message from God. That's hermeneutics. So what was Christ's hermeneutic? How did Christ encourage you and I to, to understand the Bible? His answer is a little surprising. What was Christ's hermeneutic? His hermeneutic was simply this. Obedience increases understanding. Where do I get that? Look at verse 17 with me. Jesus says, If anyone's will is to do God's will, read that again, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. According to Christ, 
The key to Bible interpretation is not years and years of formal study or mastery of Greek and Hebrew or access to 20 scholarly commentaries. No. The key to understanding the Bible is a willingness to do God's will. That's it. Jesus says, if you want to understand the Bible, step one is simply this. Are you willing to do what it says? And if you are, you'll understand the voice of God in Scripture. One scholar says this, you can study Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. You can memorize all the notes in your favorite study Bible. But until you submit to the will of God, it won't make sense. The famous F.F. Bruce says this about this text. If there be a readiness to do the will of God, the capacity for discerning God's message will follow. Obedience increases understanding. I grew up on the South Hill, and when I was in junior high, I used to walk a few blocks down the street to um, a massive pond. There's a big private pond surrounded by roughly 30 houses. In the winter months, this pond would freeze over. After several weeks of freezing temperatures, we would slowly inch out onto the ice, unbeknownst to my parents, see how thick it was, and if it was thick enough, we would strap on skates and play hockey for hours um, on the pond. Now, the, 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 the pond wasn't very deep, and the ice wasn't always super thick, so you could see through the ice to the objects below the surface. Now, imagine walking across the ice one cold December afternoon, and seeing below the ice a shiny object. And you wonder, is that a shovel? Is that a skate? Is it a bag of silver? Who knows? You can't really see it because the ice is distorting the object. You walk by it again the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and your curiosity is in overdrive, and you're wondering, what is that object? I can't quite see what it is. I need to figure it out. So the next day, you bring to the ice a hammer and a chisel, and you start breaking through the ice, which I did when I was a kid. I did this, unbeknownst to my parents. You break through the ice, chisel away slowly over time, and eventually you reach down into the frozen water, and you grab the object, and you realize it's a bag of silver. Once the ice is broken, you can see what it is. It makes sense. The ice represents our will. Until our will is broken, the Bible will not make sense. Until the Bible crosses our will and we say to ourselves and to God, I will obey this, it will not make sense to us. Our will has to be broken like the ice has to be broken. The more we obey God's word, the more God's word makes sense to us. This raises the obvious question. Are you willing to submit to whatever the Bible says, even though it may not make tons of sense initially? Are you still willing to submit to it? If you are, your understanding will grow over time. We may not fully understand the doctrine of the Trinity. How is it that God can be three persons in one God? But if the Bible teaches it, are we willing to submit ourselves to it? 
It may be hard to understand how it is that God dwells outside of time. It's hard to understand how it is that God can be sovereign over all things, yet you and I make real choices. It's hard to understand sometimes why we should submit to the civil authorities, Romans 13. But the Bible tells us to do that. Are we willing to submit to the Bible even though it may not make perfect sense right away? And if we are, again, our knowledge of the Scriptures, of understanding the Scriptures, will grow over time. And if we refuse to submit to the Bible's teaching, it'll be harder and harder for us to understand what the Bible's actually saying. You must decide to obey God's Word no matter what. St. Augustine had one of the greatest minds in church history, 4th and 5th century theologian. At, at a point early in his life, he said to himself, no matter what the Bible says, even if I don't like it, I'm going to agree right now to obey it. And as a result, Augustine had tremendous insight into the ways of God in Scripture. Christ says, we must will to do the will of God, to understand God's voice in Scripture. Are you willing to do the will of God, no matter how costly it is? Is there an area of your life you're not willing to give to King Jesus right now? If the answer is yes, that will hamper your understanding of Scripture. We must be willing to do the will of God, no matter what it costs. And when we are, the Bible will make more and more and more sense to us. But we don't always do this well, do we? Which brings us to the third and final point. Christ's authority, Christ's hermeneutic, and third, Christ's verdict. What was Christ's verdict? Christ clearly says to the Jews that no one keeps the law. Look at verse 19 with me. Jesus says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Jesus Christ says, in effect, you honor and revere Moses, since Moses gave you the law, but doesn't the law of Moses say, do not murder? <laughs> Yet you're trying to kill me. In other words, you are breaking the very law that you say you esteem so highly. Verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon. In other words, Jesus, you're nuts. Who's seeking to kill you? Verse 21, Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. That is, he healed a man on the Sabbath, which is why they are trying to kill him for breaking the Sabbath. Verse 22, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, that is from Abraham, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Okay, what is going on here? Christ is talking about the law with the religious leaders. And he says, you're accusing me of breaking the Old Testament laws because I heal a man on the Sabbath. 
But the Old Testament law says it's legal to circumcise an infant on the Sabbath. Isn't it far greater to heal a whole man than to circumcise a boy on the Sabbath? He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. According to one scholar, Christ is saying, if a baby's flesh may be cut away on the Sabbath, then surely a grown man may have his whole body healed without violating the law. Here's the point. Christ tells the leaders, you all are breaking the very law you're trying to uphold, and I'm innocent. Again, 719, Jesus says, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law. Now, Christ could utter those words to every human being who's ever lived because none of us keep God's law perfectly. Therefore, we are in big, big trouble. We think we're pretty good because we compare ourselves to the person next to us. But the standard is God's very law. The Ten Commandments summarize God's law for us. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before you before me. Do you always put God first in every situation? Second commandment, you shall make no idols. Is there anything you currently love more than God? Money? Career success? Third commandment, you shall not take God's name in vain. Have you ever said, oh my God, or Jesus Christ as a swear word? Fourth, you must honor the Sabbath. Do you find all your rest and joy, all of it, in Jesus Christ himself? Fifth commandment, you must honor your father and mother. Do you and I, in every situation, honor our parents all the time? You must not murder. Anger is considered murder. You must not commit adultery, seventh commandment. Lust is considered adultery, according to Christ in Matthew 7. Eighth commandment, you must not steal. Have you ever stolen ideas, credit, or glory from others? Ninth commandment, you must not bear false witness. Have you ever misled someone or exaggerated a claim? Tenth commandment, you must not covet. Have you ever coveted your neighbor's talents, spouse, money, car, money, success, income, body? All of us are guilty, aren't we? Every one of us in here is guilty. The Ten Commandments are like a chain that hold us above hell. And if one of those links is broken, what happens to the chain? The chain breaks, and we perish. Now, imagine you're in an airplane that flies over the South Atlantic. The airplane goes down. It's you and two other swimmers. One of them is an Olympic-quality swimmer. You're a 1,000 miles from the nearest coast. The other person uh, is an average swimmer, and you are a horrible swimmer. Plane goes down, and you've got to swim a thousand miles to the nearest coastline. The Olympic swimmer starts first and says, Come with me, we can make it. He begins to swim. Perfect technique with his crawl stroke. You, because you can't swim, drown within seven seconds. 
The average swimmer lasts about 25 to 30 minutes. He or she has gone a couple miles, and they drowned. But the Olympic swimmer is a very good swimmer. He churns away for 25 hours, covering an impressive 50 miles. Please turn your cell phone off. I know. The God's word's more important, unless we're being nuked right now. <laughs> okay, everyone check. Everyone just check. <laughs> Did you all check? Everyone checked. Put your phone away. Silence your cell phones. Mine did not go off. And I'm guilty of being self-righteous right now. Anyways, I'm a lawbreaker. The champion swimmer swims and swims and swims for 25 hours, covering an impressive 50 miles. Terrific. Only 475 more hours to go. He'll be there in 19 days if he does not slow down. Even the best swimmer can't save himself. He's almost 1,000 miles short. And he's a really, really good swimmer. He's an Olympic-level swimmer. Even your best righteousness cannot save you. God's law demands perfection, and none of us are perfect. The law is meant to point us to our need for Jesus. The law of God is like a mirror. A mirror is supposed to function to show you your face, and if your face is dirty, you clean it off. The purpose of a mirror is not to wash your face. Imagine a person going into the bathroom, looking in the mirror, and seeing dirt all over his face. Then he or she takes the mirror off the wall and begins to scrub his face with the mirror. Is that going to work very effectively? No. The mirror is meant to show us our need for soap and water. The mirror is never, ever meant to cleanse us. God's law was never, ever, ever meant to, to be a means of attaining salvation. God's law is a mirror, not a rope. Climb up into heaven. Are you and I aware of the fact that we fall woefully short? Now, it's really good for us to think about this this morning because when we do, we realize that we need Jesus Jesus came and lived a perfect life, obeying all of God's laws all the time, his entire life, earning for you and I a perfect record of law-keeping. Then he went to the cross and suffered and died in our place. He was innocent, but he suffered and died for lawbreakers, people like you and me. So the moment we put our faith and trust in Jesus, his entire record of law-keeping is credited to our accounts, and all of our guilt is then placed on him. But you're only going to rejoice in that if you are intimately and painfully aware of the fact that you fall short of God's requirements. God tells 
the Pharisees. Jesus tells the Pharisees, you always break God's law. And God says to all of us, you always break God's law. That's his verdict over us, lawbreaker. But if we're trusting in Jesus, God's verdict of us is perfection. We get the verdict that Christ received. This great hymn captures this well. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. And I love that last phrase. Rock of ages, cleft for me. For me. Let me hide myself in thee. Jesus Christ suffered and died for individual sinners. He had your name in mind when he died on the cross. He had your name in mind when he was earning for you a perfect record of law keeping. He loves individuals. He died for individuals. And all we have to do is admit our need, look to him, and he forgives and he forgives and he forgives. We must all hide ourselves in Christ by faith. Well, in the history of the church, there have been many spectacular preachers and teachers. St. Augustine in the fourth and fifth century, John Calvin, Martin Luther, John Knox in Scotland. But one of the most effective teachers by far in the history of the church was George Whitfield. 1740s, American colonies, people would travel on foot and on horseback for miles through the rain, the intense heat, the wind, to hear this man preach. He would preach to crowds of 6,000, 8,000, 12,000, 20,000 without a microphone. He could be heard from two miles away. He was an incredibly gifted orator and communicator of God's word. And he influenced literally thousands of people. And although he was an amazing teacher, he paled in comparison to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the greatest teacher to ever live. As a result, he had the greatest influence in the history of the world. And from Christ's teaching, we learn about his authority, his hermeneutic, and his verdict. And this morning, if you're trusting in Jesus and Jesus Christ alone, the verdict over you is not guilty. Rather, the verdict over you is righteous. Jesus Christ was a great teacher, but even more importantly, Jesus Christ was a great Savior. Let's pray together.